the most common answer is that we do what we know how to do. So if we were brought up and, and we saw relationships that weren't great in a particular direction, then we're predisposed to repeat that. And I'm not big on fancy explanations like marrying our mother and so forth. I think it really just comes down to we do what is comfortable and familiar to us. And so what's familiar, even if it's not always healthy, familiarity is comfortable. And most people will, will gravitate toward what they know. And then they act toward people in a way that pre-screens people. So you find the people that fit with the way you understand relationships to work and vice versa. They find you. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the rock apart. Now we eating from state to state, we scraped the plate I put my eggs in the basket, took a leap of faith I took a chance, now we grow and see the impact Decoding success with special guests, now let's bring that Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. This is episode number 212 here on the Decoding Success Podcast. You're rocking with your host, Matt Labrie, and you have just heard from our highly knowledgeable guest that we are bringing on in just a few moments. He is going to help us continue the conversation of decoding relationships. Now, if you are someone that wants a better relationship, intimately, if you are someone that needs to heal from a relationship, if you are someone that wants to attract better relationships, if you're someone that needs to subtract relationships that no longer serve them, the list goes on. This episode is for you, our friend, Dr. Sean Smith, licensed psychologist in Denver, Colorado, who offers solution-focused therapy always with his client's particular situation in mind, which means he does not use cookie-cutter approaches. His treatment is always tailored to his client's goals, and his special have included anxiety treatment, relationship repair, ongoing therapy, but as mentioned today, we are diving into a practical and tactical guide for both men and women. So regardless of how you identify this conversation, this topic of relationships is for you. We're diving into an array. As mentioned, we're talking about healing. We're talking about attracting better relationships into our lives. We're talking about getting a full understanding of what it is we truly deserve in relationships. Because trust me, there are a lot of us out there, including myself, who have allowed individuals to treat us in ways that we do not deserve. And in fact, a lot of us are still in those relationships. Conversations like these with Dr. Sean are going to shine a light on that. And listen, I'm not trying to cause anyone heartache. I know Dr. Sean's not trying to cause anyone heartache. We're going to have a good time with this. This is truly educational, and I hope, I really, really hope that you take this conversation to heart. So without further ado, we bring to you our friend, Dr. Sean Smith, here on episode 212. Dr. Sean, welcome to the show. Welcome to Decoding Success. Excited to have you. You have put out phenomenal work and we're going to dive into all of that in just a little bit. I truly appreciate you taking the time to add value here. So thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Matt. It's good. To, I appreciate the invite. Absolutely. Absolutely. You have uh, many individuals that speak very highly of you. I had to research your work. You've dove into men managing risk and dating and relationships. You've put out books on that. You've put out books on helping women understand this male brain that we have between these two ears here. So my first question to kick off the show is what compelled you to pursue this line of work? Psychology in general, or this particular little uh, niche? Exactly. That niche and researching from your experience, obviously your educational background and beyond. Yeah. What led me into this little niche is that, you know, I've been a, in private practice for 15 years. I've been um, 
in psychology for, for a really long time. And in private practice, I was noticing a lot of men and a lot of couples coming through my, my office, having made the same mistakes, like, like they all miss, were missing a piece of their training. And so I started noticing and kind of piecing it together and asking men what they were trained about women and, and what they weren't trained about women. And it really became clear pretty quickly that there's a lot of training that men don't get in terms of how to think about relationships and how to get what they want out of relationships and how to, how to be you know, productive and how to, how to have a relationship that's going to be productive and useful in their life. Like, for example, a lot of guys just aren't taught that they can look for a woman who treats them well, mm. is emotionally mature, is mentally stable, has some clarity about where she's going in life, that sort of thing. Why? Hey, I'm a victim to this, or maybe victim's not the best word, but I've experienced that. In your experience here, why have men chose women that don't treat them the correct way or treat them how they deserve to be treated? I don't think there's a single answer to that, but I, th- I think maybe the, the the most common answer is that we do what we know how to do. So if we were brought up and, and we saw relationships that weren't great in a particular direction, then we're predisposed to repeat that. And I'm not big on fancy explanations like marrying our mother and so forth. I think it really just comes down to we do what is comfortable and familiar to us. And so what's familiar even if it's not always healthy, familiarity is comfortable. And most people will, will gravitate toward what they know. And then they act toward people in a way that pre-screens people. So you find the people that fit with the way you understand relationships to work and vice versa. They find you. That's so interesting. Now, I'm curious to learn what were those common mistakes, maybe just one or two from the male perspective. And I know you just gave one there. And also from the female perspective, from individuals that were coming to you for work. I think one of the biggest mistakes is, and this, this would be on both sides, is that people were not taught that you can expect good manners in a relationship. Okay. Like this is not something that's explicitly taught to people. And so if you grow up around where relationships where good manners are what we do, then, then you're likely to repeat that. But if you grow up around a bunch of relationships where people treat each other like crap, then that just becomes your default mode. Right. And when you say good manners, do you just mean, you know, like, being a gentleman to a, a woman, so on and so forth, or is there something more specific there? I just mean being polite, generally being polite. You know, you walk into a restaurant, most people will be polite to whoever greets them at the restaurant and seats them at their table. They'll say hello, they'll say thank you, they'll show some deference and some gratitude, but then they'll turn around. Some people will then turn around to their spouse and be rude and curt and, and kind of sullen or disengaged or checking their phone. You know, they're doing things to the people that are closest to them that they wouldn't do to a stranger. Mm, That's interesting. So I'm curious, and I'm going to speak from experience here. Why do women and or men, right? We'll keep it inclusive. Why do women and or men find that to be a turnoff in a sense when they do have someone treating them so well, when they do have someone that's polite, when they do have someone with good manners, like why do they push that away? Oh, I love that question. This is such a brilliant question because, and, and the answer is that there's as many answers as are in individuals. But if you had to generalize, I would say that if a person pushes away good treatment, there's something in them that says either this is unfamiliar territory and this is kind of a setup or that I don't deserve this. This is not what I'm accustomed to. There's something in them that says this kind of treatment does not belong in my life for whatever reason. And that's where therapy comes in really useful because then you, if you find a good therapist who knows what they're doing, you can pretty quickly drill down to what it is exactly in yourself that's pushing that away. Yeah. You know, it's, 
So what, what would compel someone to actually pursue that, right? Because we're so accustomed to what what's comfortable in life like what could make someone go into there i mean i was in therapy i know what it was for me it was just like i had enough and i said all right cool that was it but if someone's listening to this and they don't want to get to the point of it being enough because personally i, I would never want someone yeah. to take that same path you know what what actually gets someone to take that step because i mean truthfully and this is just an opinion here they're not living their best life if they're just in their comfort zone and they're just yeah. you know, getting what they're used to, so on and so forth. And I think this is another thing that comes back so much to a person's background. So if you, if you come from a background where we deal with problems, you know, something's not working well in life, your relationships are all kind of falling to crap or your jobs are not working out or whatever it is, we deal with that. And then maybe you come from a family where a background where we don't really deal with things head on. Maybe instead we drink a little too much or we yell at each other and we do that kind of stuff. That's how we deal with the problem. So I think that if a person comes from that background where they have been taught that, hey, it's okay to, to deal with problems as they come along, that person's much more likely to number one, recognize that there's some kind of pattern that's not functioning in their life. And then number two, try to find a way to solve it. And maybe that's therapy. Maybe it's something else. Absolutely. What's a question you wish more people would ask you? I'm sure you've done pod... I, Obviously, you have your own practice. I'm sure you have a bunch of clients asking you questions, maybe on podcasts, people that ask about the book. What's a question you wish more people would ask you and how would you answer it? Oh, man, I'm a deer in the headlights now. I don't, I don't really have an answer. To that. <laughs> well, <laughs> Let me think about that one for a minute. Absolutely. Maybe. We'll circle yeah. back towards the end of the show. I, I don't okay. mean to pump anyone whenever I ask that, but I'm just no. because- Great I mean, question. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, ultimately, I want this show to be, you know, as of value to you as it is the people that are listening to myself, so on and so forth. So maybe there's something that, you know, you wish you talked about more, but we'll circle yeah. back there. No, no need to, to, to ponder on it too long. I want to jump back to something though. If go I right may. ahead. Absolutely. You would ask that question, what leads a person to go out and try to solve their problems? And there's this other thing that I notice quite regularly is that sometimes people will come from a background where we don't deal with things directly. And that person's for some, for whatever reason, earlier in their life will say, I'm not doing this. I'm, I see that these people around me are miserable and I'm going a different direction. And it seems to be, I guess, in my anecdotal experience, almost as common that a person comes from that kind of background and says, no, I'm not participating in that. Right. Agreed. Uh, how much of that work, that inner work, we'll say, quote unquote, we won't even use the word therapy, just inner work is more so self-discovery and unmasking, right? Uh, unmasking all of the societal or cultural or conditioning that we've you know, received from our upbringing to fit in, so on and so forth. I think most of it. I think that we tend to go along on autopilot. You know, we, we develop patterns when we're young, and if we don't question those patterns, then we just keep repeating them. And the more we repeat them, the better we get at them because we, we get good at what we practice. So, so yeah, a person will, yeah, I kind of trailed off there. I answered the question. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> I how to answer it again. I appreciate it. I want to get some, go into some specifics here regarding the work that you've put out specifically to the books. How does the male mind work? And that's a question, obviously, not only for the women that tune into the show, but also for me, because I have so many questions about... <laughs> you know, the way my mind works, especially in the relationship space. So yeah. I know that might be kind of broad, but I'm curious. Let's open up that floor and dive into that. Well, let me pick something particular to focus on because it's such a, such a broad question. And I would start by saying there's much more in common between the male mind and the female brain than, than not. We're the same species, but there are some, some differences that really get people bound up with each other and, and you know, crossed wires and so forth. So I think one of the fundamental differences between men and women, and particularly where romance is concerned, is that 
for a man to function well, both within himself and within the expectations of whatever society he's in, he needs to be, he needs to have a purpose larger than himself. And this is not really, I don't think a matter of my opinion. I think this is something that every society expects of man. And there's a psychologist named Roy Baumeister who actually went out and counted and, and looked at societal expectations. And there's basically a society for every man everywhere that you produce more than you consume. And if you don't, then you lose your man card. Whereas for women, a woman is judged to be a woman when she's physically mature across cultures. I mean, there may be some little things, little cultures here and there where that's a little bit different, but for the most part, that's the criteria for becoming a woman. But for a man in almost every culture, there's some sort of rite of passage. And that gets a lot more complicated in Western societies where there aren't so many existential threats to face, but still there are rites of passage that men are expected to participate in. And if you don't, you're looked down upon. Right. What's your suggestion for someone that might not know what their purpose is? How do they discover that? Well, especially for younger guys, especially the key is to know that you're in a weird place in life. Like if you're a 20 year old guy, I remember being 20, it was a long time ago, but I remember what it was like. And it sucks because in a sense, so in a sucks, in a sense, it's great. It's, you know, it's the greatest place to be, but also there is this expectation that you better get your act together and you better start producing something. But then at the same time, you don't have any skills, you don't have any money, you don't have anything in, in your corner. You have to build all of this stuff. So you're at a little bit of a double bind there. It's not unresolvable. So I guess it's not a double bind because a double bind is always unresolvable, but you have a job to do, but you don't have the tools yet. And so when you're a young guy, the most useful thing you can do is just try on a bunch of hats and take little steps in some direction. So Pick a direction that feels like it fits with your values and take a step. Maybe you go over to, to your buddy's shop and you start learning how to work on cars or something. You see what that's like for you. And maybe you're, well, I was about to say library, but nobody goes to the library anymore. Maybe you're reading some of the classics on the side and maybe you develop another skill over here. Like maybe the garage isn't really your thing. So you go try something else out. Maybe you take some classes, maybe you go to college. But the point is, if you don't know where you're going, try something, you know, and see how it feels. So th this is where it can get real interesting. If you try on all those hats, right? And, you know, I, I agree with you. I 100% agree. You got to try things on. You got to see what works for you, what doesn't. But how do you know if that's what you truly love at your true essence versus what, you know, society wants you to do, your parents want you to do, so on and so right. forth? That's where that unmasking comes from, yeah. comes in that you were talking about. It helps if you know what makes you tick. And one of the things that makes you tick is your values. And so how do you, how do you discover your values? Where your values are who you want to be in the world. So if you think about all the domains a man, a man can have in life, he could be a father, he could be a brother, he could be an employee, he could be an employer. You know, there's, there's all these different roles. And the, I think one of the secrets to figuring out what your values are is not so much the question, what do I want to do, but how do I want to be? So I got to work every day. What's the man I want to be at work? And women can ask themselves this question too. What's the person I want to be at work? And if you can start narrowing down, okay, this, this is how I want to behave. This is who I want to answer to. This is how I want to conduct myself. This is the set of principles professionally that I want to aspire to achieve. Then you're thinking about how you want to move through the world, not just what you want to come toward you. Yeah, that, that's, it's powerful. And I, I mean, I ponder on that because, I mean, it, it really has to come down to parenting to an extent, because truthfully, at 20 years old, I, I wasn't even thinking anything of that nature. I right. was thinking, you know, what, what's the next girl I could hook up with? <laughs> right. 
you know, <laughs> like yeah. th- that was truthfully it. And I think about that. And I'm like, all right, when did I start evaluating my values? When did I start, you know, doing that type of work? And truthfully, it probably started around 25 and started to, you know, snowball a little bit more and gets a little bit deeper and deeper. So it's, and I appreciate the perspective. It, it's something to take into consideration for sure, especially when you, uh, when you think about having children and, you know, things of that nature. Yeah. And I think you're right. You started off by saying that so much of this is about parenting. And I, th- I think that's absolutely right. That it's one of the jobs of the father. Fathers and mothers do very different jobs and they're complimentary and they're both wonderful. But one of the jobs of the father is, hey, what are we, what are we doing here? What's the purpose? What are you after? Right. And just to start you thinking about those questions, like how do you want to be as you mature? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what is the main difference going back to what we, you know, how we just started going off there? What's the main difference between the female mind versus the male mind? Because you said that we're, you know, we're of the same species, et cetera. We have a lot of similarities. What's the main difference if one? I'm going to be really, I'm going to be honest with you here and say that I'm not good at talking about how the female mind works necessarily where it differentiates from the male mind. Now I, I, you know, I'm a psychologist and I deal with everybody. And one of the specialties I had for a long time was working with anxiety disorders, so like panic disorder and so forth. And, and there's not much of a difference between the way I would approach, well, there's no difference between the way I would approach ang- a panic disorder in a woman and a panic disorder in a man. So the commonalities there are pretty profound, but the differences are also profound. And whereas I'm pretty comfortable talking about how the male mind intersects with a romantic relationship. I'm not so great at talking about how the, the female mind does. Right. No, it's appreciated. I appreciate the transparency there. I, I, I'm still trying to figure that out myself, although I don't have the educational background as you, I, you know, just from trial and error here. It's something that's trying to be figured out. So I appreciate that for sure. But moving on to your other bodies of work, I've done the best I can to get through as many as possible. I I think all of this work is extremely interesting. One of the topics was men managing the risk of dating and marriage. Mm -hmm. And again, kind of a broad question here, but I'll leave it to you to maybe specify based on where you want to go. What are those risks in today's day and age? Well, the, the book is, I titled the book very carefully, The Tactical Guide to Women. And I chose that knowing that it sounds horribly misogynistic, but it's not, if you read the book, it's, you know, I'm very, I'm very affectionate toward women. But the reason I chose that word tactical is because there are, when I see men making mistakes in relationships, they tend to be tactical errors, meaning they're not thinking ahead in terms of what this person and what this relationship are actually going to bring into my life. And there are some real threats on the horizon, like family court tends to be very unfriendly toward men. Now, that's not always the case because family court is capricious and the judges are basically unaccountable to anybody saying so do whatever they want. But the general trend is that it's a lot easier for women in family court. And that creates a really bizarre, it creates a moral hazard, it creates a bar, bizarre sets of, set of experiences where men are, men are conditioned to behave as well as they can in, in a relationship if they're thinking about family court. And women don't have that same motivation because women if they're paying attention, they know that if things fall apart, society is pretty much going to be on my side and not his side. Right. Well, I agree with, I mean, my parents have gone through that. So I'm, I see it firsthand. Yeah. I'm curious though, how far can someone think ahead while remaining present in that relationship? How far can you think ahead? While remaining present, right? Because yeah. I, I'm guilty of thinking so far ahead that I'm not present. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, maybe I'm not grateful for what I gotcha. have at home and so on and so forth. Gotcha. Yeah. That's a real, that's a good question. Cause I, I'd never really thought of it in terms of thinking ahead and, and 
as you're saying, and I'm thinking, yeah, we do men and women, I think both do tend to start fantasizing about how this is going to be in the future. And so in the book, what I encourage men to do, number one, first off, the first third of the book is about you. We're not even going to talk about women yet. We're going to talk about you getting yourself squared away and knowing where you're going in life before you start taking on passengers, so to speak. But Rather than thinking ahead, which I think it's fine to fantasize, but I I really try to bring guys into the present and assessing what this relationship is actually bringing into your life. Like, how does she handle conflict? And I have counterpart book for women, The Practical Guide to Men. And I chose that title carefully too, where the the advice is kind of similar. It's like, okay, what, what is, how does this person act under pressure? How mature are they? And what are the signs of maturity? What, what kind of kind of funky personality stuff do I need to be looking out for? I'm avoiding the word personality disorder because it gets thrown around too much and you can't, it's very difficult to diagnose. And so it's more useful, even though I use the term in the book, it's more useful to think in terms of personality dynamics and how does this person, how does this person relate to other human beings basically? And mental health, are they taking care of their mental health? It doesn't mean that good mental health doesn't mean that they have no health on mental health problems. Like so many people have some sort of, sort of depression that's connected to something or some sort of anxiety disorder, but are they taking the initiative to get a handle on it? That's good mental health, not just letting it sit there and fester and make everybody else miserable. Absolutely. Now, what does that assessment process look like? Like, when does it start? Is it, you know, the minute you go on a first date, do you start assessing right away or uh, does it come somewhere down the line in your opinion? I think we all start assessing right away, but if we're, here's the thing, if we're attracted to the other person, then the assessment, we start looking for what we like about them because we we get sucked into that confirmation bias where, oh, this person's hot and she talks to me really nicely, or he's hot and he talks to me nicely. So we start then making a case for that person. And what I'm trying to give everybody to do is be a little more objective. Yeah. You can have that fantasy. You can do that stuff, but let's be objective about what does good mental health look like? What does maturity look like? What does clarity of intent and purpose and mission look like? And let's focus on that too. Yes. I've been very guilty of that myself where I've been totally biased and I'm like, oh, I'll brush that one under the rug and definitely been there. <laughs> but I'm curious, how, you talked about fantasizing and it being okay. I, I agree with that when you know you could just daydream about you know how you want something to work out. How do you avoid the attachment to those outcomes though, especially when it comes to relationships? Well, it's tough with... God, you have great questions. So I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the honeymoon phase here. Okay. So you're asking this question, how do you stay grounded to reality? when that emotional part of your mind is off singing about sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and how this is all wonderful, right? And we know that when you get infatuated with somebody, you start losing a little bit of connection to reality. And this is not a metaphorical thing. There's, there have been studies where we can find, not we, because I didn't do the research, but they have found studies where there are signatures in cerebral spinal fluid that says that when you're in that infatuation stage, you're actually, your brain chemistry is deviated from baseline a little bit enough. And it doesn't take much enough to, to cloud the way you see yourself and the way you see the other person. So when you're in that infatuation stage, what are you doing? Well, you're looking at all of the wonderful things about them and you, you're not really getting in touch with the other side of their personality. And so this is probably something that evolved in us so that we will mate quickly and before we have too much time to think about who this person really is. But we know that 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 biochemical change can last anywhere from like six months to 18 months is the, the latest numbers that I've read in a study that was a few years old. But that's where we're seeing the world basically under the influence of some altered 
brain chemistry. And then things start to come back to normal. We start to return to our baseline. And I think one of the, I don't think, one of the reasons that you, one of the ways you can know that you're coming out of that infatuation phase and starting to see yourself and them more accurately is that little things start to annoy you. So like they become a real human being. So maybe six months ago, you thought it was really sweet and charming that she spent a lot of time getting herself ready to go out with you. And she was always a little late, but that's okay because she's putting this wonderful effort into this. And then at some point you start to realize, okay, there's a flip side to that. The flip side is that she's making me late and it's embarrassing. And you start to, that's, you know, you start to get in touch with these little things of a three-dimensional human being rather than an idealized human being. Right. So to answer your question, how do you see things clearly? I think number one, you recognize that you're not going to see things clearly for a while. That's okay. Enjoy the ride, but don't make big decisions during that phase. Don't get a puppy. Don't rent an apartment together. (laughs) Don't sign a lease. Don't get a car. Don't make decisions when you are in that puppy dog phase and you're not seeing them clearly. Absolutely. So go ahead, go ahead. Well, well, I just want to give credit to some researchers here. I'm, I'm in Denver. There's some researchers at the university of Denver that have done a lot of looking at the decisions that people make when they're in that honeymoon phase and why they make them and how bad it can work out. Right. And one of the reasons, some, some of the reasons that people make big decisions in that honeymoon phase is they'll say things like, well, it just makes sense for us to move in together, you know, cause, cause then she'll be closer to work or then, you know, we can share rent and they start coming up with all these nonsense justifications for why this is a good decision when really it's just your hormones talking and you just want to have somebody there that you can have sex with all the time. Right. Right. Now, you know, just having this conversation, it makes me think, and I mean, listen, I, I can go down the rabbit hole, especially in the relationship realm. I, I read books, podcasts, et cetera. How much of this information, the tactical, we'll use the word tactical information that's being derived here, the value that's being derived here in this conversation or in books or wherever should be applied versus just living, right? Like where's the balance of the two, if there is any balance and, you know, kind of just having the belief what's meant to happen is going to, is going to be anyway. Yeah, that, that belief, it's what's going to happen is what's going to happen and what's meant to be is what's meant to be. I think that gets a lot of people in trouble. And you can use that kind of reasoning. You're basically turning off your higher reasoning when you say stuff like that. And you can use that kind of rationalizing to get yourself in all kinds of binds, like marrying someone that you probably shouldn't marry because your values are not aligned. Yeah, agreed. A hundred percent. I think the reason I chose that particular example of your values not being aligned is because that's when I've heard people say this kind of stuff like, oh, it's just meant to be in love work will conquer all. And what they're really saying is that we're not a great match because we have some values differences or there's something about their character that isn't quite right. But hey, what's meant to be is what's meant to be. So I'm just going to roll with it. No, sure, that's, that's the enemy. When yeah. do you evaluate? And I mean, again, I guess this kind of goes back to the assessment. So maybe I'm repeating myself here, but I might've been guilty of doing this too early in relationships. Maybe I've done it too late. Who knows? I'm single, no ring on my finger. So in regards to values, when do you start evaluating that? Is that out of the gate? Because I think your values is a huge thing, right? If you're not on the same page, you know, why even pursue or move forward? Immediately, as soon as somebody shows up on the radar as any kind of romantic prospect. Number one, you've got your values sorted out. You already know what your values are and they may be evolving, of course, but you know where you stand on your values in terms of the big questions like sex and money and, and religion and that kind of stuff. You know where you stand. 
But as soon as somebody is a romantic prospect, yeah, you start evaluating immediately. So would it be smart for you not to date until you have that shit figured out for yourself? Nah, I mean, part of, no, the, the reason I say no is, okay, look, let's take high school and things have, on the dating landscape have changed tremendously over the last decade. But basically what happens in high school is you're trying on different relationships. And that's why relationships are, they come and go very quickly. And, and there's lots of drama and lots of, you know, people falling in love and out of love and so forth. And part of what you're doing there is you're figuring out how to operate in relationships. And that, that's part of sorting out your values, but don't knock anybody up or don't get knocked up when you're still figuring that stuff out. Sure. Absolutely. Now you talk about falling in and out of love, that type of thing. What's your thoughts on healing after a relationship? How does one do so? Because personally for me, I, I found that to be probably the most important thing I've ever done. I don't yeah. want to be uh, someone that contributes to the vicious cycle of hurt people, hurt people. I've, I've been someone that's hurt people and I've also been on the other end of it. So I'm curious, what's your take there? I think that the most important thing to do after you break up is one of the most important things to do in life in general is to think about why you brought this person into your life and what you contributed to it not working out. Absolutely. Were you just acting out some old pattern that you hadn't really been aware of? And um, maybe you, maybe it didn't work out because you were being kind of a dick. Right. Maybe it just didn't work out because it, because the values weren't there and that's okay. And everybody's fine. But yeah, looking inward instead of getting all your friends to, to get on your side and tell you how the other person did you wrong. That does nobody any favors. It doesn't. It doesn't whatsoever. In that process, though, I think something, and I, I was never taught this, and you know, this goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, like what, what were we taught about women? What were we taught about men? So on and so forth. I was never taught how to forgive, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I even think part of that was even learning how to forgive myself. So how would you suggest someone starts to forgive? Tell me more about forgive. Yeah. Let's operationalize that. Absolutely. You know, and I'll, I'll be specific to my last relationship and I'll be the guinea pig here. You know, we'll use me as the lab rat, but I, I was severely mistreated, which I allowed myself to endure over the course of X amount of time. And I realized through that process, granted, I cut it off. Everything is fine. But at the same time, I, I had to learn how to forgive myself because what I didn't know at that time, I didn't know. And it took me a while to start to understand. It took me some really deep work with a therapist, with a coach, with, um, you know, flotation therapy, yoga, like really getting in touch with myself to understand, hey, this is what you deserve. You're not receiving it. You need to cut it off. Forgive yourself for allowing yourself to experience it. But at the same time, forgive the other person because truthfully, you know, at the end of the day, what, what it comes down to, people treat you how they really feel about themselves, you know, or maybe they self-sabotage or they hit an upper limit because you treat them so well. So ultimately, I said to myself, how do I forgive? I'm freaking on Amazon, buying books on how to forgive, buying journals on how to forgive. And I've done all this stuff. But at the same time, maybe people don't go to that extent. So maybe we can streamline that process for them here and give them some advice on uh, how to forgive someone. Yeah, it's a question that me and probably every other psychologist out there has really thought about a lot. And I think basically what you're talking about, what you just described is a form of anxiety. And when I say anxiety, I don't mean, what I mean is you, there are parts of your brain that are going to hang on to experiences. So you touch the stove, your brain's never going to forget that. Now, if you don't find a way to operate in the world, in a world that contains stoves, then you, that can spin out of control and uh, not stoves necessarily, but I'm using stoves as a metaphor here that you can end up hiding in your room because the, the world is full of stoves and they're going to come and get you, right? You, you, that part of your, your brain can 
take over and say, no matter what happens, we have to avoid the stoves because the stoves really hurt, which is not a bad message, but it also needs to be tempered with the rational side of your mind, which is what all that work you did was. It's, it's the rational mind saying, all right, we're in a world full of stoves here. So we better figure out some ways to operate around all these stoves and learn how to be with stoves and not get destroyed by stoves. And really, I think that's the question that's behind forgiveness is how do you learn how to operate in the world where there's a million different ways you can get hurt? You got hurt by one of them. How do you, how do you keep from overgeneralizing and hiding in your room and thinking, I guess there's a couple of mistakes you can make there. One is that that you have no control and no influence over that, which is what that emotional part of your mind will say is that the stoves are going to come get you. But then also to think that to fall into the trap that that's really the only thing you need to worry about. So you're worried about stoves. And meanwhile, you get your finger caught in the refrigerator or something. It never occurred to you that that could happen. So getting in touch with the fact that, yeah, the world's kind of a dangerous place and I'm going to adopt some principles that allow me to move through it in a way that's relatively safe and doesn't hurt other people as well. And I think you've given plenty of advice on how to do that, right? When we talk about the assessments, when we talk about being level-headed, when it comes to fantasizing and honeymoon phases, so on and so forth. I mean, you've given a ton of value on how to navigate that. So just expressing gratitude there again, because it all came full circle just there when you were, when you were alluding to that response. Well, thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, one, one curious thing that came about when I was researching your research and, and you know, the work that you've put out in the world you mentioned something along the lines of how men and women change after being committed. Mm-hmm. I, I want to amplify that. Why does that take place? This is the realm of a thousand different comedians out there that will talk about things like the fact that the man that is courting you, if you're a woman, is not the same man that is may not be the same man a year after you get married. Like maybe the guy that this happened with, with my relationship where my wife and I used to love riding bikes together. So we would go on these long bike rides and we live by the mountains. So we would go up there and do all kinds of cool stuff on bikes. And then we got married and my life became a lot more serious because I, I had some tasks that I needed to perform, like getting to graduate school and so forth. And so the, back, the bike riding went to the back burner and it went to the back burner because I had a job to do. Because I was fulfilling that that male imperative of you better produce more than you consume. Right. Which, by the way, I don't. Just as an aside, I don't, I don't whine about that. I think it's kind of a wonderful thing that the world has expectations of you. It's a vote of confidence, and and it's a wonderful thing to get up in the morning and know that you have a reason to get up. So all right, so enough of that. So <laughs> I went through this phase where the bike riding went to the back burner, and she took that as that I, I had changed, and that I, she, I sold her a bill of goods because I was this guy that liked to go out and ride bikes. And now I'm not. And it took us a while to sort out that, okay, no, that that's not what's going on. I have a job to do. And then now that things have settled down a little bit, I'm, I'm back on the bike again. So I'm back to that guy. But so that's one thing that can happen is that the guy gets into a more serious phase of his life and the woman can feel a little bit dejected by that. Mm-hmm. Another thing is that guys fall off their game. You know, they, they talk a good game when they're pursuing her and then they get lazy mm-hmm. and women will do the same thing. You know, women will, Women have their version of that, where they they present one thing as they're courting, but then they're, they're sort of hiding the other side of themselves. And that's another reason that we wait. We actually haven't, you and I haven't talked about this, but we wait a good long time after the honeymoon phase fades 
Like we give it at least a year after the honeymoon is gone so that we can see how they dance in, in the day and in the night. And then we have a little better sense of who they actually are. Right. Because you don't, you don't want to be in this position where you feel like you were sold a bill of goods. Absolutely. You brought, you actually just brought me back to what I wanted to ask earlier. I've been trying to take as many notes as possible, but one of the things is how long can a facade, how long can someone actually like fake an energy or like fake who they are? If that makes sense. Yeah. It takes energy. And I don't, it's, it's a great question. I've thought about it a lot. I don't really know the answer because I think there's different phases of that. There's the first date faking it where you, the person on the first date is going to be a different person than the person on the fifth date, for example. So there's that level of faking it, but then there's molding, trying, trying to give the impression that your values match their values, which I think this is maybe something that women might do a little more than men, although I don't know. Actually, I'm going to take that back because I don't know that to be the case. I've seen a lot of people on both sides of the equation do this where for a while, be, a while being maybe during that entire infatuation phase, you sort of mold your values to fit what you think they want you to be. And it's not necessarily an act of deception. It may just be an act of What's the word I'm looking for here? An act of trying to connect with them. There's a better word for that. But my point being that it's not necessarily a malevolent, deceptive act. It could be that you're just trying to fit in with them. You're trying them on, essentially. Right. That makes sense. Absolutely. So it's faking it, it, but it's not faking it intentionally, necessarily. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent understand. Yeah. I've I've been on both sides of the spectrum where I've I've faked it. Or not necessarily faked it, but, you know, might have showed up in a sense where I was, you know, way more confident than I was and then started to regress over the course of time. And I I think a lot of factors go into that. We can go down the rabbit hole with that as well. But I want to give you the opportunity here to circle back to that question I asked you earlier. If there if there is a question that you wish more people would ask you and how you would answer it, if not, no worries. But I just wanted to make sure I was circling back and giving you the floor there. Yeah, I don't know what the question would be, but I guess we'll play Jeopardy. The answer would be slow down. Don't make big decisions when you're, when you're in that infatuation phase. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think we've, we, we've definitely touched there in a, in a few different ways. So uh, hopefully, hopefully we've drilled down that point. I know I sure I, I've written it down, slow down because uh, I, I like to move at the speed of light. And I think mm-hmm. that comes down to probably again, circling back to society. I know a lot of my friends personally experience it with families, a lot of pressure from families like, Hey, you know, I'm about to be 30. I'm turning 29 next week. And like, Hey, you know, I I actually just had my mother the other day say in conversation with my elementary school gym teacher, who we bumped into while out to dinner. She said, I think my son's gonna, gonna be single uh, his whole life. And I'm like, Really? Like, what are you putting so much pressure on this for? Yeah. You know, so I, I think that also really contributes. And from a, that's from a male's perspective and maybe from a female's perspective, too, because females only have a certain window, uh, a mm-hmm. shorter window as to when they can reproduce. Right. So I, I think that really contributes to the whole uh, let's move fast phase. It, it, and I don't know if that's something you've experienced in your, either your practice or your personal life, but uh, I, I definitely see it firsthand. Yeah. I think you, you definitely see it when you're younger and that family pressure of, you know, if your mom wants grandkids, you know, yeah. it just boils down to that, but you see it throughout life too. Like I have a relative who's in his sixties and he's, he's single and he's absolutely loving life. It's just, just being a single bachelor at 65 and everyone around him wants him to get, to get a woman. And he's like, no, I, I, that chapter, I read that chapter and I'm done with it. I'm enjoying life. Leave me alone. 
Well, but the point being that, yeah, the pressure's there. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people also, and I'm not there, so I can't attest to this, but a lot of people say, hey, life starts in your 40s or life starts in your 50s, you know? So like, mm-hmm. listen, everyone's path is different as well. I think, uh, again, it circles back to almost whose life are we living, you know, when it comes to the unmasking, when it comes to the, the conditioning, so on and so forth. Yeah, for that, sure. That's what it is. You might've beat me to, the, to my next two questions that I, I tend to ask, but I'm going to tailor them to our conversation here, I typically ask, what is one piece of advice you would give, you know, if this was your last podcast, if you can't put out another book, if you've lived to as many, you know, as many years as you'd like to live, what would be one piece of advice you would give to the people that are listening to this? But I want to tailor it more so to what would be one piece of advice to women that are tuned into this? And you might've answered it with the whole slow down thing, but if there's something specific to women, something specific to men, we'll dive into it there. Okay. Let me Give me a couple of seconds here to, to formulate the answer because I'll, I'll, I'll talk myself through it here that the men, as I mentioned earlier, I think the men that the mistakes that men tend to make tend to be tactical. They're not thinking about how this, the, the effect that this relationship is going to have down the road. Right. If I had to generalize about the mistakes that women make, they tend to be more romantic errors. And that's why I titled that book, the practical guy, because I think that the errors tend to be more on the practical end of things. They'll tend to idealize a man and what a man might represent for their future. Whereas men aren't always thinking about what the relationship means for the future. And so I think, say your question again, was it for? Yeah. I mean, we'll ask for both. What's one piece of advice for women? What's one piece of advice for men? So I think for women, it would be to enjoy that romantic side of yourself that wants to idealize this guy and think about the character of this person and and what this means down the road for you in terms of do you two actually fit together? Because your heart may be saying we're perfect, but reality may be saying something different. And for men, it would be along the same lines, but with the added burden, I guess, of my heart may say we're perfect together, but the family court judge may say something different. That's powerful. Uh, I might I might be repeating myself here just in a different way, but I'm curious, what's the balance between listening to the heart and reality? I, it shouldn't be in conflict, really. I think that when things are working well, they will be aligned. Right. Agreed. Agreed. I love that. Uh, Dr. Sean, I appreciate it. Phenomenal value here. Truly, truly appreciate this opportunity to amplify your words, your work, so on and so forth. Are you hanging out on social at all? Or are you on any social platforms that I could direct people to? I'm on Twitter a bit. My Twitter handle is Iron Shrink. Okay. And I also have a, I have a blog that I date occasionally at ironshrink.com. Awesome. I'm going to make sure that, you know, any, any socials, websites, where people can get the books are in the show notes of this episode. Do you have anything going on? Maybe a new book on the horizon that you want to make people aware of? Any work, so on and so forth? There is a new book on the horizon. It, I just passed that phase where it's it's kind of a big, ugly mess right now, but it has form and substance, which is kind of an exciting stage to get at. Now I just get to rewrite it a few times. And, and in a sense, it's I'm on the downhill side here, but there'll be more to say about that. Okay, cool. You have any projected date to, to throw out there or don't put no. pressure on yourself. <laughs> I'm a no pressure guy. <laughs> I'm hoping within a year and a half or so. I love that. Awesome. Man, we'll, we'll have to bring you back to discuss that book when, when it's on its way out. But uh, one last time, Dr. Sean, I want to express my gratitude. Appreciate you hopping on here. Well, thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. Absolutely. 
And there you have it, episode number 212 with our friend, Dr. Sean Smith. As you could probably tell, these conversations absolutely light me up when we talk about relationships, but it's more so the psychology to the relationships, right? How our childhood impacts who we love, what we're attracted to, how we were programmed and conditioned to believe what relationships should be and shouldn't be. The list really goes on. Really grateful to be able to amplify this to all of you. So thank you for checking this out. If it made an impact, if it added value to your life, make sure that you are sharing it. We love hearing your feedback. So reach out to us. Let us know what you loved about this episode. Make sure you're checking out Dr. Sean's work. He has two amazing books that are out there. The Tactical Guide to Women, How Men Can Manage Risk in Dating and Marriage, and also the practical guide to men how to spot the hidden traits of good men and great relationships until next time everyone be blessed peace